Blog Talk Radio. Why, you're gonna pull those pistols and whistle Dixie. That's right.
Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to End Time Tribune, covering breaking news and current events as it pertains to Bible prophecy. In effect, dispelling all the cunningly devised fables about the rapture. For he is coming. He who sitteth upon the throne is coming. And he will rattle your cage.
Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the End Time Tribune for this special edition, Asher Rides the Velvet Revolution. It is good to be with you tonight. Sorry for that little bit of a rough start. Um, had some personal issues happen to be worked through. So I hope you weren't too put off by that rough, uh, <laughs> rough auto start of the show. But, um, ladies and gentlemen, we got big things to talk about tonight. More importantly, you all should know that Brian and I did not get to uh, discuss this privately for any length because, uh, well, of personal matters. Uh, so, Brian's going to be sharing some information tonight that is probably going to rattle your cage, to say the least. I'm sure that everybody has got their ears perked up after having read the show notes. So let's get Brian in the saddle and get his introductory thoughts about this and um, what even got him looking into the area of Armenia. So Brian, uh, jump right on in here and uh, give us your opening comments. All right, well, I guess to jump into this a bit, uh, I don't know how many people were aware of uh, what happened here over the course of the week when uh, the Velvet Revolution has broken out inside of uh, Armenia. Now, it was reported early on when this started that the person that was behind this was being paid by outside sources and outside nation, you get the drift. But I guess the bigger question here remains is, who are these people? Who are the Armenians? Well, I think that's going to be rather shocking as we move into it. And I'm going to hand it back over to you, Matthew. Uh, Let me know if my mic is too hot or if anything weird is going on with it. No, you sound fine to me. Um, you may be perhaps uh, a little bit louder than me, but it's not I'm, – I'm not getting the distortion that I get when it's really too high. So I think you're just fine. Um, that being irrelevant, uh, Brian, that's, that's relevant anyway. Um, it is always the content <laughs> that makes the End Time Tribune, not the, not the delivery, not the – not the audio file itself. I know that people go through great links to uh, entertain you. However, uh, that has never been my goal. Never really cared about that. I am quite disturbed to find out that one of my former associates is, uh, wow, um, how do I put this politely? Uh Countermanning Brian and I, shall we say. And that's all right, because as I told Brian, I told Brian not to worry about it because he is completely and absolutely ill qualified on every single front to counter anything that Brian and I have to share. Like tonight, uh, Brian's going to talk about the archaeogenetics. He's already got it mapped out, uh, he's already got the proof. 
It's always in the putty, and they're always trying to cover it up. So with that in mind, uh, Brian, your mic being louder than mine is completely irrelevant. I'm sure they can hear me. And believe me when I say <laughs> that due uh, to the simple fact of the vast uh, correspondence that I get, what I say they're going to hear. Um, so, you know, if, if the audio's off and not as polished and as brass as other programs, I don't even have the inkling. To care. So, with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, you need to realize that uh, the opposition leader in Armenia said this I'm declaring a start of a peaceful velvet revolution in Armenia. There's only one problem with that the Bible, God's holy word, is binary. It is first and foremost Hebrew, and it is Greek. That is how it was delivered to us, using those two alphanumerical scripts. The Thompson translation of the Greek Old Testament makes it pretty clear in Isaiah chapter 37 and verse 37 what we're dealing with here. Now, that being the case, ladies and gentlemen, I look today, and Brian was correct. There's other people that have been prepping, or rather peppering, our words with, well, academically unsound literature that is purely designed, processed, edited for your entertainment that's all so uh, here we're doing the facts going to give you the truth about not only the seed of the woman which we have in an entire broadcast now we're going to talk about daddy's side of the issue because this is the fact of the matter the place that you know as Armenia has ramifications well beyond these SS shepherds. That's all that I can really, because biblically they're defined in Ezekiel chapter 34, and the Word of God clearly defines them as shepherds that feed themselves. So they're self-sustaining. They're SS shepherds is what they are. That being the case, you have to come to grips with what information we have to work with. And I've stated many times before, I've spent my whole life doing this. Coming to grips with what the Bible, God's holy word, actually says. What does it actually say? Because that's what God meant it to say. We just have to swallow it. We have to swallow his words. We have to come to a reckoning with what he said. Because everything else is a lie. That's the way it is. It's always been that way. Uh, today, I encountered some entertainment. Uh, a poor gentleman uh, 
claiming to be a geologist, got in contact with me. And of course, it didn't take him very long to figure out that he was shaming himself and completely discrediting his ministry because, uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, you can prove with even the amount of sediment that exits the Mississippi River every single day is unequivocal proof that this planet cannot be any older than 6,000 years old, and every geologist knows this. Case in point, uh, do you know where Niagara Falls would be if it was older than 6,000 years? Of course, they don't want you to know that. It's very upsetting to them when somebody that is qualified as myself counters them and drags them out into the light, kicking and screaming by the hair of the head. Because I don't talk about random emotional things. I'll talk about the facts. I will talk about the strata. I will talk about how you are inducing circular reasoning because you cannot date fossils by what strata you find it in if you go to the geologist and they date the strata by the fossils that somebody else found in it. That is circular reasoning. It's ridiculous. Uh, much like uh, if any of you was to take part in any carbon dating, you will quickly realize that uh, when tested ten times, you come up with ten different results. So they just guess which one is correct, and their guess is what they want you to think. It's not the truth. And of course I've not only studied all the types of dating, I've actually performed many of them like the uh, uh, Zircon method. Uh, look, all of them. It's a joke, and they know it. The Lord, he is God, and you better listen to what comes out of his mouth. Because that's how your future is going to go. No other way. And he really don't care. He really doesn't. He really doesn't care what your emotional attachments are. What degrees you have, whether your tenure depends on that or not. And if you say the wrong thing, if you say the Bible's true, you'll lose your tenure for the rest of your life. He doesn't care. As a matter of fact, this is going to be a shocker to most of you. He doesn't care what your job is, and he never did. The only thing he cares about is what you do. Do you follow the Ten Commandments? Do you follow the Beatitudes? Because anything else he really doesn't care about. He only cares when the fat sheep in the flock, as per, let me say it one more time, Ezekiel chapter 34, you better start studying it. When they pay these SS shepherds to make stuff up, And feed you so that you become leaner and leaner and leaner and leaner because they're separating you from what the Bible, God's holy word, actually says. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that, that's their intention. It's their intention to do that. So you're not going to get none of that here tonight. We're going to talk about the actual facts, the actual test results. Um, whether it be 
archaeology or genetics or what the Bible says because the Bible says things that, well, nobody likes. That's why they always try to change them. That's why King James got involved in 1604 and commissioned uh, something other than what had been scripted before, which was the Geneva Bible, which was the New Testament was just case in point. It was based on the manuscript, the Edita Regia. That's why they had to scrap it. <laughs> Surely you know that. Surely your self-sustaining shepherds have taught you that. But if not, you're in for one whopper of a ride tonight. So just so you know. I really don't care what God's Word says. I don't. I just take the data, come to grips with it, swallow it. That's what I accept. That's just how it is, and well, if you know, I'm real emotional because I really do love, let's say, the Cubans. And the Bible says, you know, that you know, uh, the Cubans are going to be obliterated. Well, that's just how it is. I mean, if that's what he said, that's what we run with. As a matter of fact, most of you will remember when Brian started uh, co-hosting the End Time Tribune. Guess why? That was the only criteria he had to meet. And he was tested on it over and over and over and over and over. I sent him things, sent him verses here. What does this say? What does that say? Now, sometimes Brian did get upset. He's like, well, it says this. Yeah, well, is that what we're going to run with? Without wavering, 100% of the time, Brian said, well, that's just, that's just the way it is. He was correct. And everything that he knows is because God heard him say that. <laughs> but if you're looking for entertainment, please turn this off and go back to where you came from. But go knowing this one thing. The shepherds that you're going to, they can't tell you where you're going, but I certainly can. So, with that in mind, let us come to grips with this Armenian situation. So, uh, Brian, uh, why don't you tell us about the situation in Armenia? Uh, because I tried to find it on other people's websites, and there was nothing. There was complete silence, like it's absolutely unimportant. So most of our listeners probably don't even realize there was anything happening in Armenia. Uh, but after you describe that, let's get into the meat and potatoes because I really cannot go very long on milk alone. Never could. So, Brian, you have the mic. All right, let me uh, jump into this. Early in the week, uh, approximately, it was about the 13th, I believe, that this broke out, which would have coincided with the same uh, window of time, depending on your uh, time, dateline, position. Armenia broke out with the revolution that was termed the Velvet Revolution. Now, here's an article from Eurasia Net 
is one of them I can pull up. There's, if you go out and look this up, you'll see what's happening. There's two videos that I had uh, grabbed last night, and the audio in there would be helpful. But nonetheless, folks, you can easily look this up and find out what's going on. Now, just to give a brief paraphrase quickly, um, this article specifically from Eurasia.net or Eurasianet.org. Sorry about that. Armenia's Sarg Sargsayan appointed PM as protesters declare Velvet Revolution. Armenia's National Assembly voted overwhelmingly to install Sirs Sargsyan as a prime minister on April 17, ignoring protesters calling for the former president to step aside. On the fifth day of demonstrations, thousands rallied in Yerevan, shutting down the capital. Local media reported that demonstrations had spread to other cities. Sargasson resigned as president a week ago and under a new constitution that makes Premier the country's most powerful figure, is set to extend his unpopular rule indefinitely. In his acceptance speech following the 77-18 vote, Sargasson touted the accomplishments of his 10-year rule, yet he acknowledged frustrations and economic decline. I'm sure that many, many people in Armenia, at least 60% or maybe even more, are unhappy with everything. Sarshin said, and any family children may well be unhappy with their parents or vice versa, but that doesn't mean a conflict. Turning to face members of the opposition, Yalkblok, he added to live in a just Armenia, Indeed, we should avoid waking up the country's extinct volcanoes, and they won't be woken unless there are those to provoke them. Yelk's most prominent member, however, wasn't in the room sporting a camouflage T-shirt, cargo pants, with a black eye, hand bandaged from scuffles with police the day before. Opposition MP Nicole Pashayan was busy coordinating the crowd gathered outside. The National Assembly Marionette session has started out, has started and so are mass protests across the Republic. Pashinyan, leader of the Elk Way Out movement, proclaimed through a bullhorn in comments cited by Armenian Public Radio, I officially declare Armenia has entered a revolutionary situation, and I hereby announce the start of a peaceful people's velvet revolution. Increasingly, the events of the past five days appear to be a standoff between Sargshin and Pash. In Yen. Sargsyn, the 63 year old president of Armenia's Chess Federation, likes to wait and make the last move, say opponents, preferably one that decides the game's outcome. As both Pashinyan and Sargsyn vie for authority, it is unclear if either has a plan. Yet the odds are stacked firmly in Sargsyn's favor. Not only has been Armenia's elected leader for the last 10 years, he officially controls the security services and presides over a party uniquely loyal to him personally, a party that lists many of the country's richest people as members. For his past 42-year-old, Pashinyan has a controversial record and limited resources. A European University dropout, he began his career as a reporter for Armenia's budding independent media in the 1990s. In 1999, he took over as an editor of Hakan Jamak Armenian Times, an influential and staunchly anti-government daily. He emerged on Armenia's political stage during the crisis followed the dispute, the 2008 election. 
folks, keep in mind that Mikhail Saakashvili in 2008 did what? Woke up in the middle of the night, started launching missiles into South Ossetia, the Georgian War that happened that year, which once again, the atypical uh, Western sources tried to blame Russia because they ended up getting involved. Uh, It's the same old story as the Ukraine. Now, I'm done with my uh, commentary. Let me move on. When he worked for President Levantet Petrosin's campaign, Tur Petrosian, the country's first president, lost the vote to Sarasian. The election was followed by mass protests that led to 10 deaths. Pashinyan was sentenced to a seven-year jail term for the role of staging the demonstrations, only to be released under an amnesty the following year. Pashinyan first entered the parliament as Tur Pedersen loyalist in 2012. By 2015, he was branding himself as an independent protest leader during the so-called electric Yerevan demonstrations. Bugan as a protest against highly against high electricity bills. Electric Yerevan grew into a movement that challenged Sarasayan's power the following year. Pashinyan tried to harness mass demonstrations in sport in support of a French opposition group that had violently seized a police station. Throughout his political career, Pashinyan has capitalized on movements he didn't start. For combining a commitment to civil unrest with his spot in Parliament, Pashinyan has been accused of being a puppet revolutionary, somebody taking orders from the presidential administration so as to give Armenia a democratic veneer. Pashinyan's Integrity indeed has sometimes been in doubt during the 2017 parliamentary race in which he and six other Yelk Bloc MPs secured their seats with the grassroots campaign. Campaign volunteers would privately admit, I don't trust Nicole, but Yelk has a chance. Still, the last four days have helped Pashinyan assume the role of Armenia's opposition leader. Through the protests were largely begun by two Parliamentary groups that appeared after Sarkshian indicated he would seek the premiership. Reject Suraj and for the name of Armenia, it is now Pashinyan who effectively heads the opposition. In his camouflage and backpack, Pashinyan has spent five days running around Yerevan, proving he has learned some lessons from 10 years in the opposition to prevent violence. He coined a slogan, the police are our brothers and pointedly apologizes to police on the streets for the inconvenience to maintain public attention. He appears at surprising locations, storming universities, campuses, and occupying the public radio stations. Late on April 17, on Eurovance Freedom Square, Pashinyan called on protesters to return tomorrow and continue to paralyze the capital. For now, it's his move. Now, I have here another one that comes up through the same website real quickly. I could search, but I don't want to add the keyboard tapping into the uh, microphone at this point. But this is uh, came up in April 20th of 2018. Armenia protests spread, as does police crackdown. And as of last night, there were reports of 180 people to 200 that were arrested. The protest itself is in the tens of thousands. And it keeps growing and growing and growing. Now, folks, you may be asking yourself, what are we looking at here? Why is this important? 
And where are we going with this? Now, I want people to take note of a few things, stretching back to before the events that led to September 11th of 2001. Now, this has been documented by a plethora of people, but one of the most uh, prominent ones that really I will draw your attention to it is the uh, ex-CIA operative, Bob Baer. He's also part of the program that has been on History Channel, but his big uh, claim to fame is essentially George Clooney played him in a movie about the events that were leading up to this. That is Bob Bear, ex-CIA operative. Now, he goes through and he explains in his book concerning Saudi Arabia and his other book details that led to events that played out, starting with, for instance, Saudi Arabia, What you had going on at that time with Saudi Arabia was in discussion with uh, Aramco making dealings with Russia. This led to all sorts of issues. Now, folks, you might want to take note that it came out in Task News Agency earlier this week where they started releasing the talks between Saudi Aramco and the uh, Russian government. They're already in discussions again. Now, as Bob Baer points out, there is a lot of details that point to the Caspian Sea, the oil basins there, specifically around Baku, and then leading into Afghanistan, and the different pipelines they were attempting to build, was a large factor behind why it was that the Western nations were so, how do we put this? Well, it was as in what Turkey's uh, Erdogan had stated after the Gulen coup. It's the gift that keeps on giving. This allowed this pretext to start moving towards the Caspian Basin, move into Afghanistan. Of course, we know Iraq. We can stretch this forward to all the different things that are breaking out throughout the Middle East. And this keeps building. Now, we had an article that was released back in, off the top of my head, I want to say it was around 2011 where it charted the fact that the, uh, and it was out of New York Times, I believe, off the top of my head, that it stated that these uh, GOP groups, um, GPO, uh, what is it? It's, it's basically your non-profit uh, groups, the government-owned movements that are placed in uh, different parts in the world, I'll try to pull that article up here in a little bit because I'm getting the terminology wrong. But nonetheless, these groups were on the ground um, prior to the Arab Spring. They were uh, coaching people in democracy. And these events had a chain reaction that inadvertently had led to the Arab Spring. Now, we've had speculation throughout, um, you know, many of these Western nations have stated that the CIA was behind what broke out during the Arab Spring, but then you'll have others that point out that that's not exactly how it worked. These non, okay, it's NGOs, these non-governmental organizations are continually found tied into these varied revolutions, these varied coups. For instance, the Arab Spring, we take this backwards, we can find the same elements happen within Georgia. We had the same thing happen with the Ukraine And now we see the same 
element is playing out in front of us in Armenia. Now, as I stated previously, this was paid for by outside intervention, by outside nation, is how the article referred to it. I, after the program, I will find that article and I'll include that in a link over on the uh, overtattentionshow.com. I'm going to pull together a quick little set of notes so people have something to follow. We have the same pattern breaking out. We had talks recently with Saudi Aramco and Russia. It was also uh, revealed this week through Reuters, but I had followed this since before it happened when Rada, the Kurdish news station down there in Erbil, started uh, pointing to the fact that these that they had bought uh, were working on a deal to get access to the oil fields there in Kirkuk. Now, we know that shortly thereafter, on September 23rd of 2017, after the uh, vote for independence of Kurdistan, we had Shiite and other Iraqi groups that came in and overthrew the Kurdish people inside of Kirkuk. Now, there was all sorts of other elements that go into this. You had treachery playing out within these certain... uh, elements within the Kurdish uh, organizations and this just is very long and drawn out and it just there's not time for this right now in this broadcast but they had gotten their hands on that oil field it was signed into effect around the exact same time frame that we had the uh, overthrow of Kirkuk Now, we did a program quite some time back about why the Kurdish people are important. They still continue to be important. But let me make this crystal clear before we move into this. You've got some people out there stating that our Poxod, our Foxod in the Bible, which essentially down through the bloodlines, became the father, the great, 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 how many you count, grandfather of Abraham. They try to lock in a certain group of people with the Kurds. And I'm going to state this now. You are absolutely and most certainly incorrect in your assumptions. And we will get into that further on. The Kurds are not Part of the group we're going to be talking about later. Keep that in mind as we move forward. Now, when you have all these factors playing out here, you have parallels going on with, for instance, these situations in Russia that stretch all the way back through time itself, but keeping it to recent modern events, you have this Cold War that broke out starting right away in 1999 after the Chinese embassy in Belgrade was bombed in Serbia, bombed by NATO forces. This was, once again, an illegal war act, but hey, you know, as we've learned from the past weekend, it doesn't seem that anybody has to get permission from anybody. They're just going to go in and start dropping bombs no matter what. You can go look into this. That's well documented as well. That, according to Vladimir Putin himself and other Russian uh, interviews that I've watched, the Putin one I watched specifically where he even states 
That was the reigniting factor of the Cold War. Now, if we take this back to Soviet-era Russia, and we look especially at events that affected Israel. For one, the previous Assad, uh, the current Bashar al-Assad's father, was an ally of Russia. You had Nasser, who was in Egypt, who was also allied with Russia. Now, of course, Sadat carried on in that for a little bit in time, but we know full well about what happened with the Camp David Accords. It was around that time frame that the connections with Russia were sort of breaking down. But once again, it was announced this week that there is going to be military drills with Egypt, with Russia, and there's other dealings that are going on between Egypt and Russia. We see a complete isochronal, History repeating itself again with the possibility of Egypt being brought back into this scenario when we had just seen what happened with Sisi's election as well, where he had no opposition whatsoever, and of course he won by a landslide. Once again, folks, go in out there and look into everything that's been going on with Sisi there in Egypt. Many of the analysts, the different think tanks, the different journalists are pointing out the very fact that what has the Western nations most concerned right now is the fact that Russia is gaining massive ground and influence within the Middle East. A lot of them are stating that this is what is truthfully leading to this new brand of McCarthyism's where, a.k.a. Russia is always bad. And this is what's causing much of the conflict that we see happening here with, for instance, what just happened last week in Syria. We have, of course, the different sanctions that are being placed all over Russia. We had just a plethora of them come out in the last week to two weeks that targeted the oligarchs in Russia, people right near Putin. Russia's already stated they're going to retaliate in kind, no different than what the Chinese said in the midst of this trade war, that up and down and up and down and up and down we go, where it's stating everything's working itself out with the Chinese trade war. Then a couple days later, you find out, no, it's not, and this just continues. The same factor just is building and building and building, going nowhere good. You have them sanctioning Ukraine. As I've discussed so many times, including all the way back to when the Ukrainian protests broke out, that you can find that show in the archive. I have a link on the right-hand side of the webpage for OvertAttentionShow.com where you can go in and get a link to go in and get the archive, and you will find in there a program called The Ukrainian Crisis. This was shortly after what broke out in the Ukraine, we go through in extreme depth and explain exactly what investigators on the ground have verified and backed, including BBC, of what actually happened there in the Ukraine. This was a Western-backed NGO. (laughs) Well, let's be blunt and to the point. 
had backing from America and other European nations. Where neo-Nazis stormed into the Ukraine, or, well, not necessarily stormed. I would have to maybe take that back. They were already prevalent in the Ukraine. If you go back and look at your history of World War II, realize what happened at the time that Nazi Germany had made its way towards the Ukraine, you will find out that a great number of people allied themselves with the Nazi regime. So this is backable, verified history. These elements that broke out with these neo-Nazi organizations is what overthrew the Ukraine. We come in and we point out in there that uh, Yulia Tomashenko was the orchestrating factor behind the Ukrainian revolution. She is now in the top-running position for the next election coming up here, as reported in some news stories out of that region in the last couple of weeks. We referred to her in there as Bernice. Again, I would advise going out and finding that episode. It's important, everything that has played out. It's important that you understand what really happened in the Ukraine. Now, I need to correct some garbage because I guarantee that once, once the public begins to realize that this might be important, what's happening in Armenia, of course, you folks, you're going to start hearing that infamous name, George Soros, being blamed for everything. I'm going to tell you right now, look the other way. They pull this so much, it's gotten to the point of being absolutely ridiculous. I looked into the information where they started pulling some of this nonsense from a few weeks back, and it's tied into an organization that was called DC Leaks. The thing stakes. It's become fairly understood now that, for instance, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange had an agenda, and that agenda was to back right-wing politicians. I have stated so many times that you cannot trust the material that is coming from there. I do not like even having it cited because of the fact that, look, there's things that came through there. For instance, we had the big trove of hacking tools that they claimed was the first release and all these first uh, release of things that were going on with the security for phones and things in the internet and giving access Folks, all of this information was out there previously. The tools that were shown for hacking that were part of the NSA program and other United States government uh, cyber command projects, that information was stolen previous and was released to the public. He tried to claim that he was the first one to get a hold of this and put it out there, and that is a bold lie. You can go out there and look into some interviews one of the big ones I caught was uh, Jeremy Scahill had him on the Intercepts podcast, and he was asking him some tough questions about how do you know that you weren't being used to push the right wing? And he, you have to hear it yourself. You can tell right away. So stay away from the nonsense here, folks. They love to run around with their conspiracy garbage. Alex Jones has been out of this week. Again, a name I don't like using. Propaganda Jones is more proper and misinfo wars. This is where all this garbage keeps floating from. Now, when we look at all these parallels, that we have these situations that are wrapping themselves 
back to things that happened prior to September 11th. We have the Caspian Sea base in there. Saudi Aramco talks with Russia. Russia gaining a major foothold in the Middle East, the thing that was trying to be prevented during the Cold War, especially Kissinger, was all tied up in this. And then Mr. Brzezinski. We have ramifications here that are huge. How does this tie into Armenia? Current governing body is connected with Russia. They want this alliance broke. This has been done before. Where we had Mikhail Saakashvili, who was aligned with Western groups, do what he did during the, I believe it was the 2008, yeah, it was that election cycle. Mr. McCain, who everybody knows is a full-blown neocon war hawk. This is pretty much common knowledge. When he was running for president, I believe it was in right around that time frame, he's holding up signs that say, we support Georgia. And you had the crowds there going wild, even though they didn't have any idea what was happening. Top of it, Mr. Donald Trump, the current president, was also in the mix. I have some videos over on my overt attention show YouTube where you're going to find this. And we even brought it up in the episode we did back in 2012 uh, concerning 2008, David Flynn's work and stuff that we began to look into around that time frame as well, where that same video is sitting in there where it states in broad daylight, here's Donald Trump, we support Mikhail Saakashvili. And as it turns out, you find out there was all kinds of real estate dealings going on. This continues to boil. Same thing goes with these investigations happening here in the United States. Every time you begin to see things happening, and even Donald Trump on his Twitter, out of his own typing on Twitter, stated that the last thing that was brought up, some big nonsense thing about he set up some conference and was talking to people with Russia, and on and on it goes. As he stated, well, no, folks, you got this one wrong. It was Ukraine. I've discussed Manafort's connections as to the reality of what he was involved in, opposed to what they want you to think he was involved in in the Ukraine. Through hacked texts of his own daughter, she pointed out that he's got so much blood on his hands during the time of that revolution in the Ukraine. There's only one thing that leads to. It was Western forces that came in on the ground and started shooting people. You can see the actual footage, and you can also take a look at the Ukrainians, and you'll notice that their body builds are completely different. Ukrainians tended to be a little bit shorter and stockier, where you had very tall folks. Thin, of course, head-to-toe, covered in black, sitting there with the sniper rifles. Right away at the start, questions began to arise. You have discussions that were going on between various diplomats and other nations that were later confirmed by these diplomats that Western forces were involved. You keep going forward. Those snipers were not 
from there, and this includes what they found in the BBC investigation, because those investigators, they were on the ground when it happened. They actually had film footage, and they started looking around. Once again, you can find this out there, and I believe I even have information about this on my website already. We're seeing a pattern here. When you have the governing body has deep connections with Russia and Armenia, not, and you look at Armenia on the map, you realize it doesn't, you see that infamous little wall. You see a corridor stretching from where they are, moving up north, going in towards Georgia, or towards Russia, Georgia right next to it, over further to the east is where Baku is in a different nation where those oil deals were being made with, I believe, in, even it was uh, even ExxonMobil. I can't remember exactly which U.S. bodies were involved in those deals that they were attempting to make in the Baku region. Now, as I brought up that, uh, that movie, uh, that Bob Bear, where he's played by George Clooney, it's, it, it's, the movie can be confusing, if you don't already understand what's happening there. But the way things are portrayed already in the House of Saud, there was a certain person in there that was already working on solidifying these moves with Russia. And as the movie itself illustrates, well, they didn't, Americans didn't take too kindly to that as he tries to stop them killing him in a drone strike. His first book from Bob Bear goes into many of these details. His work is decent. I think it's a little bit short personally, and you know, a little bit more history study on his part would really open his eyes to a lot of stuff. But nonetheless, he is a valid, on-the-ground person that has spoke out concerning all of the things that he was witnessing during his time in the CIA. So once again, I've explained when it goes to source material, I'm very, very specific about what I will cite and what is nonsense. So now we get a little idea of where this is headed. We're going to have to paraphrase a few things in here because there's specifically one chapter that comes up me and Matthew talked about earlier in the week, and that's Isaiah 23. Everybody, if you've been paying attention to what's happening right now with Israel, what's happening up there in Lebanon, what's happening in Syria, what's happening with the Iranian threats, which a major one just came out yesterday. If you've been paying attention to what's happening in the Sinai, in Egypt, what's happening in Gaza Strip, what's been happening, oh boy. Oh, we'll get to that at some point. Things are getting explosive. So little details released to Western news sources that stated a, quite a few different things. Releases out of Israeli news sources where they came in and stated flat out with maps of all the Iranian air bases in Syria, letting them know, hey, we know where everything is. 
early in the week, and I noticed that these news stories sort of disappear. But what's slick is I always back everything up with at least two different note programs so that they don't disappear. There's an attack inside of Syria earlier in the week where at first it was thought that um, that Israeli planes had come in. Of course, once again, I think they began to ask the Pentagon across Lebanon, and they thought they were shooting missiles into Syria, but it turns out that the missile defense systems were malfunctioning. As later reports came forward out of Syria itself, they stated that it was a cyber attack against their missile defense systems, and even the Russian source, the guy that broke the attack essentially stopped the cyber attack, even saying the same thing. Now, the sources from Syria were stating it was the United States and Israel, but uh, look, yes, Cybercom and the uh, cyber units throughout the American intelligence agents, the military, all that, extremely advanced. But then again, I know about the Mossad's program. Not the Mossad's, but Israel's program, the connected one with IDF. There's a lot of information that was released last year. They're excruciatingly advanced. I would suspect that they were testing the water. Yesterday, Iran stated that they've got basically their targets locked and loaded. All we have to do is push the button on Israel been having this tit-for-tat display of words nonstop here throughout the last couple of weeks between Iran the United States, between Hezbollah, or I mean Iran and Israel, and the United States as well, but I guess that worked. But you had that also happening with elements in Hezbollah in Israel, of course Syria and Israel. There's all kinds of other details going on here as well with things with Russia. Not to even mention the fact of the uh, full-blown betrayal that is taking place. <coughs> Excuse me. It's taking place with our current administration and their plans in Syria. Not to even mention what they're doing with this infamous as Trump has penned it, the deal of the century. Oh, folks, do you really understand what's going on behind the scenes? Peretz released quite a few details earlier in the week. If you have convinced yourself that our right wing, specifically with this deal of the century, if you have convinced yourself that this is working In Israel's favor, the writing on the wall is showing something far different. And I have warned about this time and time again. He went to those Middle East deals last year when he was making his visits through Arabia, for instance, and the Gulf Coalition when they sat down. Billions of dollars in guns handed out. Cutter this week. Again, a great big weapons deal was signed between the United States and Cutter. Already he's armed. Everybody's surrounding him. The Arab coalition had a meeting this week where they're condemning 
Trump's move as stating that uh, Jerusalem was the capital, all of them, including King Salman. Yes, uh, Mohammed bin Salman tells one thing. King Salman says another. Now, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but the king supersedes the prince. And the prince has had his folks out making deals with Russia's oil cartels or groups. Uh, You see, they call OPEC a cartel. I wonder why. We've already had an oil shock that's initiated as we speak, folks. And guess why? Well, of course, OPEC has been pulling back their production to try to keep the uh, oil markets from not being flooded. Why? Because, well, a few years back during the Obama administration, Saudi Arabia declared bankruptcy. Yeah, nobody talks about that. So we know that happened. As things turn out, Venezuela, OPEC nation, not putting out enough oil. I wonder why that is. Oh, all the sanctions, everything else that's been pushed there. Yes, Venezuela has one of the world's biggest oil deposits in the world. They have a major shortage in their stock, but let us not forget that a mass majority of the United States oil refining factories along the uh, Gulf Coast, starting down in Texas, which were in dire trouble when that hurricane came into Texas, stretching along there all the way in through Florida. There's a vast majority of these refineries that had to be built in a certain way to deal with the type of oil that comes from Venezuela. It's a different type of oil that has to have a different refining technique. Okay, so you've got once again, you have claimed shortages. You had, at last I checked, you had it floating between 73 and $74 a barrel earlier in the week. And then on top of it, Mohammed bin Salman comes out and states, we want it to be around $100 per barrel coming up. We had the prices rise because of what happened in Syria. I warned last year, folks, you would best watch for another oil shock. And here we sit. Now, I'm going to let us have this break here because we have to get into the uh, meat of the matter concerning why Armenia is important. Who are they really in the Bible? And moving forward. Ending back over, Matthew. All right. Well, um once again, due to uh, personal situations, uh, personal issues we're having to work through, we're going to play a rather popular break uh, simply because I've had so much correspondence concerning it. So fasten your seatbelts, get your trays in the upright position, and get ready to just swallow what God has to say. Because this is the facts of the matter. You're listening to the End Time Tribune. We'll be back in 9 minutes, 57 seconds.
Leviticus 16. And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with a linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him, and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it and shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about and he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place, and the tabernacle of the congregation, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness.
and the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place, and put on his garments, and come forth, and offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make an atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering shall he burn upon the altar. And he that let go the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes, and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward come into the camp. And the bullock for the sin offering, and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall one carry forth without the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins, and their flesh, and their dung. And he that burneth them shall wash his clothes, and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. And this shall be a statute for ever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls, and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you, to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest, whom he shall anoint, and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement, and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments. And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation, and for the altar. And he shall make an atonement for the priests, and for all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute unto you, to make an atonement for the children of Israel, for all their sins, once a year. And he did, as the Lord commanded Moses. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have not understood from the foundations of the earth? Isaiah chapter 14 verse 21 Ladies and gentlemen, know in your heart that you can precisely put the Day of Atonement on the Tribulation timeline utilizing Leviticus chapter 16 verses 12 through 16 and coupling it with Revelation chapter 8 verses 1 through 7. You are listening to the End Time Tribune. Dispel all cunningly devised fables concerning the pre-tribulational rapture. Revelation 8 And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints 
ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. And the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers, and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the End Time Tribune. I do hope you enjoyed the break. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Brian just sent me the notes from our show, The Queen of Babylon. Ah, yes. Much studying research went into that, determining who exactly was the mother of Kings indeed. So ladies and gentlemen, we have got to get down to the point where this connects with the Bible. Because Brian has already brought out the simple fact that we've got major issues of major importance going on in the ground in this area known as Armenia. I've been checking over his links and everything from before the show. Ladies and gentlemen, the the genetics just stare you in the face. So, Brian, you have the mic. Let's get to it while I sit here and uh, take a once-over our original notes from the Queen of Babylon. You have the mic. All right, just uh, pulling something up here. I'm trying to find this uh, infamous little note I made in this. All right, that's not the one for Pete's sakes. All right, I will find that in a minute. Now, here's some interesting little tidbits. Hmm. Nah, let's start with the history. You see, folks, I always have done all of this in reverse. 
Matthews kind of scratched his head on this one and said, well, why didn't you go one round as opposed to the other? And he may be right. But the thing is, with that is, well, I don't know how many years has it been that I've been working on in-depth history tracking all the groups from that table of nations and then further backing it up, historical documentation, and then further backing it up with genetics and archaeogenetics. Because when you can lock both of these together, you're dealing with something that cannot be broken. It's irrefutable proof. But to get an idea, let's start here first with uh, who are these people? Well, folks, you know, the first thing to bring up, I would say, in this is to stroll over to Genesis 11, starting with verse 10. Who are the Chaldeans, everybody? Because if you do a search out there, you're going to get all kinds of make-believe and nonsense, even down to some encyclopedia articles going, we have no idea who they are. Which is, well, it's atypical, or in the words that we tend to use, that's classic. Well, let's start here with uh, the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad. Two years after the flood, and Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpachshad. Okay, I'm just going to stop there because you come down through here, you realize that what is being traced here is the family tree of Abraham, or has his name was in this time, Abram. I'd pay attention to that. We come down here, and Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. And Sarai was barren. She had no child in Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there, and the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, Matthew, you want to jump in here for a second? Because I have to find this note before I go further. Sure. Of course, ladies and gentlemen, he is tracking exactly the lineage there of Abram. This is key and critical in realizing that, well, why does the Bible come out and tell you where he came from? What is the critical mass point that the Lord our God is trying to relay to us? 
He is targeting a specific region, and that region is not going to change. Now, this is why, of course, when even you're studying the uh, genetic lineages going on in this specific area, yes, you have infusion of other DNA when a place is invaded repeatedly. But guess what? The people stay the same. The root genetic material always remains. So... With that in mind, Brian, uh, continue on. Uh, this is key critical points you need to bring up, and you're right. Every once in a while, I should jump in and remind everybody why the Lord our God gave us this technical data in the first place. He always wanted us to see this, and he always wanted us to believe what the uh, genetic findings have to offer. He never wanted us to discredit the archaeological findings in the area. Of course he didn't because 100% of the time everybody knows what that proves. It proves that the Bible's true. Always does. Uh, just like when they uh, most infamously found Jericho, guess what? When they dug down to it, there was a strange phenomenon. The walls had fallen out. They had not been blown in by battering rams. The walls had fallen out. You can see pictures of it. You can visit the site for yourself. So, Brian, the mic is yours. All righty. Yeah, and to state before I move into this, my old colleagues, you know who you are. You were correct in asserting where Ur of the Chaldeans was. I'll leave it at that. Here's my own work. Folks, you're going to find out that there is a place called Urbuni Fortress. Also known as Aaron Bird. In the Armenian tongue, this means the fortress of blood. Is an Aratian fortified city located in Yerevan, Armenia. It is 1,017 meters above sea level. It was one of several fortresses built along the northern Oratian border and one of the most important political and economic cultural centers of the vast kingdom. The name Yerevan itself is derived from Erbuni or Erebuni. Goes on to the etymology. For time's sake, I need to skip down here to the inscription that was found in this place. In the autumn of 1950, an archaeological expedition led by Constantine Horsham Messiah discovered an inscription at Aaron Bird dedicated to the city's founding, which was carved during Argashati's reign. Two other identical inscriptions have been found at the citadel of Rabuni. The inscription reads, By the greatness of the god Khaldi, Arshati, son of Manua, built this mighty stronghold and proclaimed it Arbuni for the glory of Benali, which is Aratu, and to instill fear among the king's enemies. 
Arshati said the land was a desert before the great works I accomplished upon it. By the greatness of Kaldi, Arshati, son of Manua, is a mighty king of Bayanali, ruler of Tushpa. Folks, did you catch who this god is? By the god Kaldi. You look further, this will bring up Haldi or Kaldi, same thing. So who is that? Well, folks, hmm. Oh, yeah. You see, these folks show up all over throughout history in varied interesting places. Robes, wings on their back, something very strange in their hands and a little cup riding upon a lion. Yes, folks, that is called the... For any of you that are familiar with Graham Hancock, his latest uh, book, he actually uh, had a lot of questions about these guys. What in the world is in their hands? Why are they doing this? Well, folks, keep in mind what the Bible says concerning, concerning the Chaldeans. Especially bear back to memory, for instance, Daniel 2. Now, if we look a little bit further at this, you see it's rather interesting, and I need to pull this quickly to get the exact wording correct here for what the uh, Armenians call themselves. Okay, sorry about that. Now, taken from Encyclopedia Britannica, Armenian, Armenian, hey, plural, hayek, or hayek, a member of people with an ancient culture who originally lived in the region known as Armenia, which compromised what are now northeastern Turkey and the Republic of Armenia. Although some remain in Turkey, more than 3 million Armenians live in the Republic. Large numbers also live in Azerbaijan, Georgia, and other areas of the Caucasus and the Middle East. Many other Armenians have migrated to Europe and North America. Now, this word of what they refer to themselves as, be it H-A-Y-Q or H-A-Y-K. Now, when you translate this word H-A-Y-Q, to the Hebrew, you're going to find out that it is associated with wine and drunkenness, and it gets rather interesting because you're going to find out that this word wine comes up a whole lot in the references in the Bible concerning the Chaldeans. This is not coincidence, everybody. Of course it's not. So now we get a little bit of background as to what your uh, encyclopedia articles are going to lead you to. As I stated, this fortress itself, this is in, well, it's the capital city to an extent. It was in ancient times. Yerevan, the Serboni fortress. And it's quite something, folks. You go in and look at the photographs, varied things in here, the galleries and... You can start tracing through other 
things that are found in Armenia that are associated with these people that worship the God called thee. Now, folks, this isn't a stretch. You really can't escape the fact that you're dealing with the God called thee in ancient times, for instance, that Assyrians named themselves in accordance also their God, Asher. Okay, this is a common thing that was happening throughout all sorts of parts of the world in ancient times. You have something happening here that is no different whatsoever. So, we can tear down the infamous, what most of your uh, academics and your biblical scholars, and they all run around saying this, that Ur is down by the Sumerian civilization, and that's where Abraham came out of. No, that absolutely incorrect. It's here in Armenia. And like I said, you can pull this up on the map. You can look up Erebuni Fortress, E-R-E-B-U-N-I. And you can easily pull it up on the map and see where this was at. Now, as I brought up that group of people called the uh, Het. Something very important that I think people need to pay attention to because Het or Haya, as I brought up, and the associations with the people in Armenia of what they call themselves. This is a little clip of an article from in the EDU site, which is, it's an academic institution, folks. When it has EDU on it, that's what it is. Points out a few little interesting things concerning this Haya. God, as they properly have it spelled with parentheses and a little g. In the early periods, Haya was mainly worshipped in southern Mesopotamia, Uma, Ur, and Karath. His shrine in Ur may have been located in the Enskigal temple of Nana, the moon god. There have been suggestions that Haya was also worshipped at Mari in northern Syria. However, Duran argued on the basis of, Marian, of the Mari pantheon texts. The spouse of Nadaba, Nasaba, was in fact Sumakan at Mari, pronounced Sahan. And that the god referred to as Haya at Mari must be a different divinity. Of course, you're running into varied opinions of the different academics. Now, as we move forward, according to the Neo Assyrian, and this has a uh, German name here, so I would have to assume it's in a German museum, Gadara. Drasabuk was found out apparently around 1992. I'm not certain what this means. Either way, Haya had a shrine to the temple of the god Asher. Two fragmentary inscriptions from Nineveh mention the planned construction of a temple to Haya by the Neo-Assyrian king Sennacherib. Yes, folks, if you study the Assyrian Empire, you're going to find out that there's two separate distinct periods. The Neo-Assyrian was the later, the one that we see all over the place when Sennacherib and all the other infamous Assyrian kings start coming into the equation. From and Sennacherib, they put this in the time frame of around 704 to 681 BC. Although it is not clear this where this was going to be located or whether it was built. Okay, let me repeat this again. Two fragment inscriptions from Nineveh mention the planned construction of a temple to Haya by the Neo-Assyrian king Sennacherib. 
although it is not clear where this is going to be located or whether it was built. Right, let me... uh, The next portion of this in this same article, time periods attested. The first attestation of this divine name in writing occurs at Farah, ancient Surapak, southern Iraq, in a school tablet from the 26th century BCE. The context is unclear. The god is most frequently attested in the Ur-3 period when he had cults attested in Umar and Korah. In the old Babylonian version of the lexical list, Urasa, treatment, treating items made of wood, an item bearing his name, Gishhala, is listed in association with wooden instruments connected with scribal activity. Folks, you might want to pay attention to this because we've talked about this in the past. For some reason, the word for peacock is also used written using his name, Drahala, in an old Babylonian text. Right, folks, if you look into the ancient religion of the Zedek Kurds, you will find out that the peacock angel is a big part of their cosmology, and that angel... That peacock angel is also one and the same as Azazel. Going on further. The cult of Halaif falls out of use in Babylonia after the old Babylonian period, if not or before, or is not attested. It was revitalized during the Neo-Assyrian period when King Sennacherib planned to build him a temple according to a draught of foundation document from his reign. He's still characterized as a scribal god, presumably in the role. He presides over a procession of the gods of Sabaratu at a festival in Asher. He also participates in the New Year's festival of Asher. Folks, everybody draw your attention back to this. 2 Kings 19, verse 37, Isaiah 37, verse 38. I'm going to read them back to back. And it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his god, the Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, smote him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of where, depending on your translation. Greek's going to tell you one thing, Hebrew states another. And in the English, in some of the translations, sort of just comes out and says it. And they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Ershardan, his son, reigned in his stead. And it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, the Adramelech and Sherezer, sons, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Ershardan, his son, reigned in his stead. Well, folks, look, right here, now these are Armenian people that trace their name going back to the same deity here as well. In texts that have been found, 
We have mention of Sennacherib. Now, folks, this is the type and shadow it always has been. He shall worship a foreign god. This gets important. I want to draw everybody's attention to something else here before we move too much further forward. Here is the uh, definition of our Foxod from JewishEncyclopedia.com. According to Genesis 10, 11, and 1 Chronicles 1, the third son of Shem, Bokart's identification, Phaleg 2, 4. Of this name with the Arpacteus of the Greeks and Armenian region, north of Assyria, adjacent to the Great or Upper Zab River, has long prevailed. The Arpacitis, however, did not belong to the Semitic word, and it would be difficult to account for the element Shad. Very pro- um, improbably explained as an Armenian element, Shat by Lagard. Still more probable, the Kurdish Albag Deliches Paradis 256 explains from the Assyrian Araba Kishati, the four quarters of the world has not been confirmed. Nonetheless, this goes on. More recently, the view of Michalis and by Josephus that Arpakshad contains the name of the Chalcidium or Chaldeans has become predominant. The explanation of Justinius, etc., is boundary of Chaldea, of Chain, Arpak, and Peshad, written together by mistake, so on and so forth. We move forward, uh, are now superseded by the observations of Hamel, ancient Hebrew traditions, page 294, that Arpakshad is the same as Ur of the Chaldeans, Ur Kasadim, both names. Agree in the consonants except one and also in meaning as Arpaxad is the father of Shalah, grandfather of Eber, and the ancestor of Terah, Nahor, and Abraham, who came from Ur, then inserted P of Arpaxad has so far not been explained as we can move forward. Arpaxad, a king of the Medians in Ectabana, is mentioned conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, the second of Assyria, and put to death. The name has been clearly bothered borrowed from Genesis 10 by the writer. Now this gets a little bit complex, but then again, this helps explain the anomaly with the twofold genetics in this region. Because all of a sudden you have King of the Medians being mentioned here using that name. But Nebuchadnezzar, here is the reason that Matthew brought up that I sent to Queen of Babylon. Now, we have a, a video over on the Bands of Time YouTube channel called The Queen of Babylon, where we go into this in explicit detail. Who is the Queen of Babylon? Well, she was known as Adagopi of Haran. Adagopi of Haran, also known as Adad Gupi, was an Assyrian priestess, a devotee of the moon god Sin in the northern Assyrian city of Haran, and the mother of King Nabadonius ruled from 556 to 39 BC of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. 
goes on. Let me see if we've got the actual inscription here. Inscription of Adad Gupi. Now, I have this, folks, here in the uh, text of the Middle East. It's a very expensive volume. Now, let me see if this is skipping to the inscription. Here's the text. The cuneiform carved on the stone tells the life history of Adagupi, daughter of Ashurbanipal II, the great king of Assyria, and the queen of Asherat. And the, the inscription is possible that it was written by a clerk of King Nabadonius. Okay. Elements of this are unreadable, of course. I am the daughter Adagupi, mother. Nebadonius, king of Babylon, priestess of the god Sin, Ningal, Nuxa, and Sardama, my gods, who since childhood has been looking for the gods, while in the 16th year of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, Sin, king of the gods, with his city. And the temple was angry and went to the sky, the city and population in which to rubble. From the 20th year, Ashurbanipal, king of Assyria, I was born until the 42nd Ashurbanipal, third year, Ashur Atu Ali. His son, in all 21 Nabopolzer, the 43rd Nebuchadnezzar, and the year Awal Marduk, the fourth year of Negrosur. 95 years as the god of sin, king of the gods of heaven and earth, I'm looking near of his great temple. For my good deeds, he looked at me with a smile. He hears my prayers. He granted my words. Anger, heart became quiet against Ehul, the temple god Sin, who was in Haran, his favorite residence. He was at peace. He considers Sin, king of the gods, looked at me and Nebadon's son, fruit of my womb, to the throne of the king. He called and the kingdom of Sumer and Akkad from the Egyptian border in above sea to sea under all the land he entrusted since then at the hand. Second hand and goop to sin, king of the gods, with respect to the application, I pray that Nabonid, son of me, descendants of my womb, his mother's favorite. From the time of Ashurbanipal, king of Assyria, until the 19th year, Nebadi, king of Babylon, the son, the offspring of my womb. 104 years of happiness with honor by sin, king of the gods, placed me. He made me proper, prosperous. I own my second sight. Clearly, I understand well healthy hands and my feet. Chosen my words. Meat and beverages fit me. Flesh is nice. Happy heart. Do not suffer, but let him worship the great God. In 21 years, Nebuchadnezzar, sir. King of Babylon in 43 years, Nebuchadnezzar, Napoleon's son, and four year, Negrosur, King of Babylon. When they shall hold office, king for 68 years, with all my heart, I respect them, I keep them. Nebuchadnezzar, son, me, descendants of my womb before Nebuchadnezzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar before Negrosur, King of Babylon, I caused to stand. Noon and night, he kept them. 
what is pleasing to them, he did it constantly. My name he created being the favorite of them in front of them, and as the daughter of their own, they raised my head. Nonetheless, this goes on. Calculation of time. In the inscription obtained information that supports the preparation of the chronology of the ancient Assyrians and Babylonians were already there. Adad-Gupi lived 104 years. So she witnessed the turn of the throne of a king of Assyria in Babylon until Nabonidus, the last Babylonian king. He was born in the 20th year reign of Ashurbanipal, his father, the king of Assyria, which is in 650 to 649 BC. Adagupi died in the ninth year of his reign of his son, Nabonidus, namely in the years 546 BC. And one inscription panel noted there was a lunar eclipse in the fifth year of the reign of Babylonians Nabopolassar. In the 16th year of Nabopolassar, he destroyed the city of Haran. Folks, to boil this down, and these notes go into a tidbit of the detail. All right. The Chaldeans at the time, for instance, that were ruling over the landmass of ancient Babylon were the Chaldeans. The kings were birthed through the loins of this Assyrian mother. Her chronology confirms everything that is in the Bible. That is for one reason why it is such a mega important text that you can find in this very expensive book, this volume of the text of the Middle East. Okay. The mother that birthed all these kings down to the last one of Nabonidus, she was an Assyrian. The male line were the ancient Chaldeans, known in the Bible as Arpachshad. Their place of origin. I swear. As I pointed out earlier, we have on the ground documentation in Armenia up by Yerevan. That was Ur of the Chaldeans. So pointed out before, you'll try to look in who were the Chaldeans at the time of the Babylonian Empire. You're going to run into a wall of nonsense. Now, the article that I read from the Jewish Encyclopedia that explains to you that Arpachshad is the same as Ur of the Chaldeans, I didn't even access this at the time when I started this work quite some time back when I got infuriated at the fact that they won't tell you who the Chaldeans are in your standard uh, historical documentation. They'll go, well, some groups say they're Marsh Arabs. Others will say all kinds of very strange things. No. Folks, the Bible even tells us the Hebrew people they're associated with who? The Chaldeans. That is the genetic bloodlines. You can't escape this. We even have, for instance, out of the international standard 
Bible Encyclopedia will back this up as well. It brings up the same details. It's going to draw you to only one place, Armenia. Now, you see, we're going to stop for a moment and, oh, yes, we get to play with genetics now. Because this is a very important modern science that has been rewriting our understanding of a lot of things concerning who is where, how, and why. There's something very important to take note of. There is a massive body of work being done on the genetics of the Armenian people because of the fact that they are considered a isolate group. The vast majority of them had stayed in those regions all throughout history. But there's something very interesting going on here, which can be very easily explained when you know your history. You have two groups of people here. Frequencies. Armenians, men's most common Hawaiian DNA halo group is R1B. Spawn in 28%. This next one is J2. Is the next most common frequency at 22%. All right, folks, what are we dealing with here with R1B and J2? Well, R1B would most be connected to those, uh, well, that branch of Ashkenaz, the Saka Scythian, referred to by Herodotus as the Saka Kagarhuta. More specifically, the Scythian with pointy hats. Let me explain something real fast here, folks, because you need to get this through your minds right away. Now, the most, the most major text that historians will quote from is obviously Herodotus concerning the Scythian, but you need to understand right now that was a blanket name for a large group of different peoples. You have varied nations from the table of nations that are encompassed within that title Scythian. The Scythian are not one people group. They're not one genetic body. Okay. Saka Tiger Huda. I have touched on this in the past. I'm going to reiterate it now. Saka Tiger Huda were what has always been known in the Bible as the Magi. Okay, the Magi are not Zoroastrians, never were, never will be. We cover this in depth in other programs that we have done. At some point, we're going to come back and do a program on this so people can understand who they are and why this is important. The next group, J2, that is your Semitic bloodlines. What does Semitic mean? It means anybody descended from Shem. We shouldn't be shocked at all by this because let's consider what we find. We bring up the other... uh, Let's consider what it states here in Daniel 2. 
Sorry, one moment here. I'm trying to find the exact verse. All right, let's go down to uh, Daniel 2, verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is a Magian, a conjurer, or a Chaldean. We go further through. Let's go back up to Daniel 2, verse 2. Folks, I want you to pay careful attention to this. This is referring to a different group of people with the names listed. Then the king gave orders to call in the Magi, Conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. Okay, folks, different groups of people. Conjurers and sorcerers. Folks, we've discussed in the Wings of the North, I would advise looking into the Altai Shaman. And while you're at it, maybe start looking at the ancient Tibetan religions, some of the groups going into the Pamir Mountains. It's important because your conjurers and sorcerers, okay, this is documented within a lot of history. The Altai shamans in the Mongols were later replaced when the Tibetans came in and started going after the shamans. And they had to go into hiding. They started coming out of the area where they were in hiding up by Siberia, down to Altai a few years back, quite a few years back here anyways, after the fall of the Soviet Union. Much documentation out there. But let us go back again. The Magi, conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans. Each distinct group of people. But here we can see in genetic documentation, not to even mention there is a plethora of documentation out there that we've discussed in times past about how it is that the Magi came up into this region where the Chaldeans were. So we should expect to see this in the genetics anyways. Why? Once again, right here, who's working together? The Magi, the Chaldeans. I could go into mega in-depth historical documentation supporting who the Chaldeans are, where they were in Armenia. This isn't up for debate. But uh, we're rolling down near the end, and we haven't even touched on hardly any of these uh, verses. I'm going to hand this back over to Matthew for a little bit so I can get a breather. And then, I don't know, Matthew, try to pull out some of the uh, verses that catch your attention. I mean... There was one in a specific outside of the fact that Isaiah 23 had caught my attention, but but yeah, Jeremiah, we could we could spend the whole context of the rest of this show on Isaiah chapter 23. I mean, 
if you backtrack and look at the players and see even who is being threatened in Isaiah chapter 23, we've got some major problems because, well, I mean, we're down to the end of the program right now. But the entire consternation about Tyre being targeted here, when I have no need to remind anybody uh, that uh, the infamous passage that most people attribute to Satan being a cherubim and uh, this sort of thing and connecting him with the king of Tyre, they seem to fail to remember… That that is literally being written about Jezebel's dad, Ethbal II. That's a historical fact. So when you connect those things and realize the area in question here, and this area of Tyre is about to explode off the map as it is. When you realize uh, taking a look at this just on uh, – well, the the King James Version side of it, okay? God is saying some very threatening things, but I'm going to read it out of the KJV in verse 4. Be thou ashamed, O Zidon. For the sea hath spoken even the strength of the sea, saying, I travail not, nor bring forth children, neither do I nourish up young men, nor bring up virgins. As at the report concerning, ah yes, Egypt. So, Brian, I'm not quite sure because we could stay right here. And we've already crossed over into our 15 minutes of overdrive. When there is no consternation uh, that can be reconciled with God's word. Um, as you just stated where this is encoded into his word. Now look, so, uh, Isaiah 23 starts with the ships. And ladies and gentlemen, let's just talk about the British ships operating right off the coast, well, of Tyre. Right now, that are based in Kittim, which you know to be Cyprus. Now, I hope you all realize that it was submarines from below the depths off that very coast that, pers- you know, that 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 took part in that uh, launched. Missiles into the very, well, cup of trembling that we're talking about here. So I don't know how 
much more you want me to exemplify and talk about all the verses that I know, they have to come to grips with what – just verse 4, Brian. They rejected in their mind that this has anything to do with a woman being in travail or Christ, their very own king, giving the most dire warning that will be unto pregnant women and nursing mothers. They reject <laughs> – that this is even a factor in this equation. I mean, the simple fact that right here in the Hebrew, in verse 6, it mentions of ancient days. Her own feet shall carry her. Brian, he's given you key critical identifiers to start chain referencing exactly what he's talking about. And I'm just talking about the Hebrew. I'm not even touching the Greek. And if they don't understand that the Gaza Strip is exploding, um, Israel is Happen to counter threaten Iran because I mean Israel did kill Iranian soldiers and the Russians was the first ones up to the plate to issue red lines in the sand we blew right over them and that's why the Russians issued these warnings Because Russia knew that they weren't the only ones with official troops on the ground. Those troops officially sanctioned to help the duly elected government of the region. So Brian, I have just – give just a little bit. In five minutes, now we're down to ten minutes left. And let me ask you something. Are you going to make available to the public uh, the notes that you have sent on to me? Are you going to send people those links so that uh, they can take part in this? I'm going to attempt and, to. All right, because the two PDFs in question here, ladies and gentlemen, is Armenia and the Chaldeans, and of course the original one uh, from the Queen of Babylon. But I'm not telling Brian he has to do anything. Because he don't. But what I'm looking at here, there is no arena for argument. It's just – he's just detailed the facts, uh, the way that – well, the way that they stand. So with that in mind, Brian, I suggest that uh, you cover a verse that you think important because now we're down to nine minutes. 
But I can't stress what? enough that Isaiah 23 is more than enough for me to bring attention to just the one verse I brought up. So, Brian? What? This is the entirety. And we talked about Isaiah 23 earlier in the week. Folks, you need to wrap your minds around the fact that everything that is being spoken of here in Isaiah 23 is playing itself out again. Now, I'm going to bring up something real tiny in this real quick. Because I've years on years and years on end, everybody's run around trying to say Tarshish has been in this place and that place. And I, I appreciate it when Matthew had finally had enough and just stated it. Because Tarshish, it tells you emphatically in the Greek of the Septuagint that Tarshish was ancient Carthage. Where's ancient Carthage? Well, it's up here on the very tip. Northern Africa, what is modern-day Tunisia. That's Carthage, folks. That's Tarshish. To point out some other things here, because this is what one of the main reasons has caught my attention earlier in the week as I'm going through the news, and I've been listening to this free Bible soft, this free Bible audio that you can get through Amazon that's been very helpful with doing the news and my studies at the same time. Brings up something in here. It brings up 72 times. And the day tier will be forgotten for 70 years like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to tear as in the song of the harlot. You have a twofold 70 years that's being mentioned here in Isaiah 23. Everybody, you need to wrap your minds around this right now. Daniel 9, where it's always translated as 70 weeks, that is not what the Hebrew says. They even have altered the Strong's number and associated it with weeks. That's not what it says. It is two Hebrew characters, two Hebrew letters, back to back, that says 70, 70. First, baffled our minds until you read some of the articles coming out concerning this 70 concerning the 70th anniversary of Israel as a nation they celebrated that anniversary earlier in the week that comes up in May the same day that the treacherous one of the treacherous dealers is moving the embassy and I'm sorry if I have stated something that might catch people off guard, but we will cover this tomorrow. I will most certainly bring the article up of what has been perpetrated by our current administration in this quote-unquote big deal that he's trying to set up. And it's going to catch you by storm. There's also something that I need to point out. Because this comes up with Jeremiah 40 and on forward. Let me give a translation that sort of hits this more in the dots so people can see it. From the scriptures, uh, 2009. I have the print version of this here, and every now and then I'll pick it up and go through it because it's an interesting translation that is very handy to see some things you normally can't. 
But here in 40 verse 9 or 40 verse 8, it's where this comes up. This is how it states it. So they came to Gedaliah and Mitzpah, Ishmael, the son of who? Netanyahu. And Jokan and Yonathan, the sons of Karah, and Sariah, the son of Tanhumoth, and the sons of Ophel, the Nethophite, and Yesaniah, the son of Methkite, they and their men. And Gedaliah, son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphat, and swore to their men, saying, Do not be afraid of serving who? The Kasdim. Kasadim. We talked about that term earlier. Okay, everybody? Find out all over the place that we have associations with the Assyrian and the Chaldeans. As we brought up before, all of those kings that were upon the throne, from at least bare minimum, Nebuchadnezzar and forward, were birthed through the loins of an Assyrian descendant, the last, one of the last kings of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, Ashurbanipal. As we pointed out, you have ancient texts. They're referring to Sennacherib, Sennacherib and his worship of the same God that is associated with what the modern Armenians call themselves. You have on the ground verifiable evidence that the Chaldeans lived in Armenia. You have, through the historical records, the genetic records, that that original population is still there. They're studying them because of the fact that they're an isolate group, meaning it has stayed the same. In Armenia, we have two distinct groups of people as well. We have the Magi, which traces back to Ashkenaz in the Bible. Now, everybody, I want you to take note of this. Because we have something very interesting mentioned uh, here. Because we also have uh, another form, a mini. Jeremiah 51, 27. Lift up a single in the land, blow a trumpet among the nations, consecrate the nations against her, summon against her the kingdoms of Arat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. Appoint a marshal against her, bring up the horses like bristly locusts. Okay, everybody. Under Tigranes the Great, the army of the kingdom of Armenia. In this, we have this brought up like the Seleucids. The bulk of Tigranes army were foot soldiers. The Jewish historian Josephus talks of 500,000 men in total, including camp followers. These followers consisted of camels, donkeys, and mules used for a barrage. Sheep, cattle, and goats for food said to be stocked in abundance for each man and hordes of gold and silver as a result of the marching Armenian army was listed as a huge irregular force, too many to count. Pay attention to what this says. Like locusts or dust dust of the earth, not like any other enormous eastern armies of the time. The smaller Cappadocian, Greco-Phoenician, and Nabataean armies were generally no match 
for the sheer number of soldiers with the organized Roman army with its legions eventually posing a much greater challenge to the Armenians. What did it state here like the locusts or the dust of the earth? And what does this verse refer to? Bring up horses like bristly locusts. 